Hello, and welcome to Here Are the Nominees, a podcast where we talk about Oscar-nominated movies from the past. Well, they're all from the past. I uh, mm-hmm. wish we could talk about future Oscar-nominated movies, but I do not yet possess that ability. Uh, I'm Brent, and I'm joined, as usual, by David. Hello. How you doing, David? I'm doing good. How are you doing? I'm doing excellent. I'm very uh satisfied with our selection this time around because uh we chose knives out which is a uh radiohead movie (laughs) wait what does that mean what is a radiohead movie oh it was uh i think the 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 title knives out comes from a quote in the movie but it's also a it's a radiohead song from the amnesiac album yeah so the working title like the secret you know like the uh the what's the star wars one blue something the blue harvest name? blue harvest yeah so the code name while they were filming it was called morning bell which is a different radiohead song from amnesiac what is the purpose of, of code names for movies I, I understand for star wars i don't i don't know um especially nowadays when like there are uh, drones taking photos of things that are happening it's like to be coy about what you're filming is almost just playing a game with it at this point. Well, it fits. Just... <laughs> um, yeah. Well, anyway, before we, we, we before we get to the movie um, and the discussion, I, I do I do think it's funny. We should mention that uh, uh, we we had some we had some listeners uh, in between the last podcast and this one, and uh, we're we're excited if anyone is still listening out there. So thanks for listening whoever's out there um and uh i guess you can you can go review the podcast somewhere right do, do they still do that i don't even know i don't even know how to check our reviews review yeah. us please i guess review us give us five stars if that's possible i know apple podcast has it i don't know that spotify does but uh other apps have something like that you can at least you you could lie to us and tell you tell us you gave us five stars because frankly i don't even know how to check our ratings so <laughs> This is. I'm, I'm not just assuming know. we have hundreds of five star reviews. <laughs> I mean, I think these podcasts are actually being posted to the internet, but who knows? I might have accidentally set up like a Creed Thoughts dot doc <laughs> on my computer that I, it's just a, a blog that's not collect, uh, connected to anything. <laughs> and and also we're we're really churning out the uh, the podcast. We're we're at a pace of about one a month and. Uh, that was not our intent, I don't think. I, I, I certainly intended to do this a little faster, but, um, you know, I had twins basically around the time I decided, hey, let's start a new podcast. And, uh, and yeah, so so schedules are up in the air a lot of the time. Yeah, bear with us. You have you have new twins, and I had a, two, a kid that's turning two as soon as the pandemic hit. <laughs> so her entire being two was the last year of covid so knives out <laughs> knives out indeed okay um so uh so yeah well let's we always start with uh talking about like kind of what we brought in to this to this movie how many times have you seen knives out and uh were, were you a fan previous to this watch yeah this is numero trace and uh you know we talked about it is it uh, great or good or whatever um, as far as how much we like the movie, I think it was a 
it, initially it's a good movie that's just slowly becoming great to me. Um, it was a movie that was really fun at first when I first saw it, and uh, I've seen it three times now. Um, another time in the last year, and then for this podcast again after seeing it for the first time, and each time it's just so satisfying. It's becoming like for me almost instantly in that rewatchable canon of movies. Um, it's probably the most one of the more recent ones to be added to that. Similar to our discussion of Die Hard as something you could just always put on. If it was on TBS or something, it'd be the you know I'm gonna stay for the you know the the donut has a donut in it scene, or you could stay for you know all these all these fun things and fun character turns. Yeah, it's uh I think this is this is number. Th- three or four for me. Uh, I saw it in the theater with my wife and I think it's like the last movie we went to together. Um, Cause we were doing Christmas shopping in 2019 and uh, we just uh, on a whim went to see knives out and we both just had a blast watching this movie. Um, mm-hmm. And I know what you mean about like how it's a movie where uh, it can kind of start off just as good and then sort of earns its way to great. And I feel like it's, it's, that's maybe due to the, um, maybe the genre or the, the style of the movie in that, you know, it came out during Oscar season. It came out during, you know, when, when we were making pushes to try to watch as many movies as possible for the up, or at least for the upcoming Oscar season. Mm-hmm. And there's that tendency when you're watching those movies to, to be looking for greatness like a typical kind of greatness, like mm-hmm. uh, like Parasite or or something like that from the same from the same uh, Oscar season, and Knives Out isn't that kind of movie. It doesn't present itself as like this is going to be Oscar bait or this is going to be an Oscar nominated film necessarily. And so, I think, or at least I wonder, and, and you can you can tell me if this is your experience with it or not, but I, I feel like there's that tendency to watch the movie and just be like, that was really fun. Was it great? Uh, and then those types of movies, as you rewatch them and as they kind of become, you know, cinema comfort food, you, you realize, yeah, they, they really are great. Um, is that, is that kind of your experience with it? Yeah, it was, it was both exactly what you're talking about. Both those filters of the, uh, the Oscar push, but also being a murder mystery kind of, not quite a puzzle to unsolve like it's not a mind bender right. everything is kind of there and there's a there's a twist but i think for these kind of movies um any hercule poirot uh like we saw last of sheila a couple of years ago like a whodunit the first time through you're kind of trying to work your way and untie the knot of a twisted plot and figure out the things the filmmakers are withholding from you, and when they reveal them, does that make sense? Is everything kind of logical? Does it all line up? That was that was my view. Like, also, is it good enough to win something? You know, is it the best screenplay? You know, when it's up against Parasite, maybe not. And is this all kind of making sense? And after you get through that. And you just kind of view it as, uh, you know, you're on the roller coaster and you're along for the ride. That's when you kind of notice that it is really underrated to be a good time at the movies. Yes. And, 
and you know something else about this movie is and and, and I, I completely agree that most of the time when you're watching a mystery or a whodunit or anything like that you are watching like to to find out what what's in the box you're mm-hmm. wanting to find out what the mystery is the answer what's the solution to this riddle and knives out subverts the genre and i think it's interesting the way knives i think that's a big uh attraction to this movie is how it subverts uh its genre while also staying kind of within it Mm -hmm. and um it's i love that this one kind of gives away what you think the whodunit is 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 referring to and it gives it away about what 30 minutes into the movie or so Mm mm-hmm 40 minutes in. And so then I remember spending a lot of time thinking, okay, so what is the, what's the thing here? Like I thought the thing was who killed him, but I know he killed himself. It was indeed a suicide. So what's going to be the thing? And I think that was really fun. It turned a whodunit into a, what is it? (laughs) Yeah. Not only do you know, you know, who killed him, but you also are told how she's going to get away with it. (laughs) You know, that's the other piece it gives you. And like the, it's either like the, the question is what is it or why is it at this point? And, you know, just cause it's really fun and it's having, uh, having its cake and eating it too with kind of playing around with that, being an entry in it and just, uh, I don't know. I'm probably going to say the word fun a lot <laughs> to describe this. I'll, I'll pull up the thesaurus.com to make that. <laughs> It, a little bit. it might it might be the most fun movie of 2019. I mean, I can't think of a movie I've seen four times other than this one. Yeah, still the one watch of Joker for me. <laughs> I've seen Joker a second time, and uh, I know I say I pick these nom or these uh, are our movies we watch randomly, but if Joker comes up, I'm probably going to be skipping it <laughs> if it comes up anytime soon. Um, yeah, so. Um, what did you like least about the movie? Um, it's hard for me to quibble too much with it. I could say that uh, something that uh, we'd probably be remiss not to talk about it. There's at least the criticism at the time of there is a a white male director with a immigrant protagonist. And I think some critics at the time said it's essentially like the perfect immigrant trope of she's incredibly moral she always makes the right decision she is uncorruptible um she's kind of set up as a uh, not quite like a mary sue of you know that's the the term for like being kind of all powered and knowing how to figure everything out because i think she makes mistakes and stuff but um does her character deserve to take all of the racist horrible stuff she has to deal with and just be polite about it um as a as a white man myself i don't know i'm the perfect person to refute that or to add anything to that i can say that um it was interesting to read about and i can say that that uh, criticism is certainly valid um it doesn't take away from what i enjoy about the movie but i could see that that is that it's definitely there I, I, w- I will admit I'm pretty unfamiliar with this uh, criticism and this this trope in general, and so I'm, I'll be interested to read more about it. Uh, like you, I don't it it doesn't really detract from my enjoyment of the movie. But then again, that's not you know 
I, I can't share in that experience. I'm, I'm a white man as well. And, uh, I'm, I'm certainly not going to weigh in on, um, uh, and say like, ah, no, nah, it's, it's, who, who cares about right, that? I was, I was trying to this do a movie's gotcha fun. <laughs> um, I can say like the first time through, like my favorite characters were probably the ones who were the naughtiest, you know, the ones who were the most flippant and have the best witty dialogue. Like, uh, like Ransom is really fun, and Benoit Blanc is just so such like so many, I don't know, affectations layer on top of each other. Like wearing a trench coat, pretending to be a human. <laughs> But the the like especially this time through, Marta was definitely my favorite character, and uh, you know she's she's the beating heart of the movie. Um, I don't know if I'm viewing my my lens viewing that as problematic or whatever, but I'll at least cite that as uh, something that's out there. Well, I do certainly. Um, I, I think she's you know the audience surrogate in this movie. Like she is. This this is a movie of wild caricatures of of ridiculous people and um, even the likable ones are in many cases uh, cartoonish. And I think she is the, 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 the person that grounds, uh, you know, us uh, in a way. Um, and so I, I think, yeah, I think, I think the choice to make her an immigrant is, 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 is interesting. It's probably, um, I mean, I think it's, it's probably, I think this this movie is very firmly rooted in in a political time, mm-hmm. a political era. I think the the it probably comes out most with the, the 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 grandson who is is on his phone throughout the whole movie. I think that's the most obvious um, instance of that. But there's also I, I do think the movie is trying to uh, you know comment on the way rich people uh, treat rich white people, you know, treat, um, immigrants and, Mm -hmm. uh, whether it was handled deftly, I can't necessarily speak to, but I do think the intent was, uh, I do think the movie's heart was in the right place. Yeah. I'd I'd agree with that. I'm not going to add too much else because I'd probably be saying something incorrectly or from, from (laughs) some kind of bias. (laughs) Um, all right, let's let's delve into the plot and talk about the movie. So, the family of Harlan Thromby, a wealthy mystery novelist, attends his 85th birthday party at his Massachusetts mansion. The next morning, Harlan's housekeeper, Fran, finds him dead with his throat slit. The police believe Harlan's death to be suicide, but an anonymous party pays private detective Benoit Blanc to investigate the case. Blanc learns that Harlan's relationships with his various family members were strained. On the day of his death, Harlan had threatened to expose his son-in-law, Richard, for cheating on his wife, Harlan's daughter, Linda. He had cut off his daughter-in-law, Joni's, allowance for stealing from him. He had fired his son, Walt, from his publishing company, and he had an altercation with his grandson, Ransom. So, first let's let's talk about the setup here. And so Marta's not even mentioned in the first two two paragraphs here. Um the the Thromby family. How do you uh, you know, I want to I want to hear your thoughts on on the intricate web of uh the Thromby family and all the kind of sprawling directions it, it goes in the in the setup. Um 
I think it's pretty. I think it's pretty brilliant to have the. Um, so we have Fran discovering the the body, and then we have the series of essentially interviews. Everyone kind of uh, sitting next to the uh, the uh, knife chair. We'll call it a knife chair for lack of a better better uh, better term for it. Um, I, I love that, by the way. That is one of my favorite yeah. like production elements, uh, design elements in in any movie in recent memory. Mm-hmm. And the way that they're kind of framed next to it, I think all of them are. Um, I guess spoiler alert for a movie we said that you know really can't be all that spoiled. You know, Marta is implicated in the death. Pretty much all of the family members are like just offset from the center of the knife chair. I think the only one who gets in the center of the knife chair is is uh, Marta and maybe Benoit Blanc. Uh, I think at the end when he's trying to put it all together. But I think the... You know, there's plot-wise and camera-wise, I think it's doing a lot of... There's a lot of subtle things and obvious things to introduce you into this world. Um, I love nearly all of these actors too just i think they're just having a ball with the dialogue and the setup um and they all just get just great lines um one of my favorites is uh tony collette as Joni, saying uh when she meets benoit blanc she says uh i saw a tweet about your uh your profile and i read a tweet about your profile in the new yorker and then uh, her sister-in-law Linda comes in, and uh, Linda's, you know, a bit more um, well-read than Joni. And Linda says, "I read your profile in the New Yorker," mm-hmm. and I love yeah. those like little subtle differences that show you uh, that show you the differences. And also, the movie takes a, a little bit of time early just to uh, to drive kind of a wedge between Joni and Linda, like show, and it shows you in the flashback when Joni's the free spirit and trying to dance mm-hmm. in front of the fire. And she tries to grab Linda's hand, and Linda just just basically doesn't even uh, acknowledge her existence. <laughs> and Joni just keeps on dancing too. Um, I love showing. I love the way it shows all the different kind of sides to these characters. Yeah, Linda's disdain is so much fun. And <laughs> it's nice to see Tony Collette not like being in intense anxiety. <laughs> yes, I'm thinking of like the most indelible thing recently is her in Hereditary. I'm glad she doesn't have to go through something like that. <laughs> um, I, I also oh. like all of them are framed with their, um, their pretty much all of them have kind of fake stories for the most part of things that are half truths, and all of them have their own um, mythologized legacies about themselves and histories. Like Linda's talking about building her business from the ground up. Richard, like, you know, every all his killed kids are self-made overachievers. And Walt is do, making his own thing. And the film is showing us that they're all full of, you know what. <laughs> um, I think it's just has, a, like, as they uh, As they tell their stories from the, the birthday party, uh, each one is... Uh, you know, in their version, they're the ones placing the birthday cake in front of Harlan. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's the same. It's the same moment, but they've they've put themselves closer to him because in their minds they were you know his favorites. Yeah, 
Because since all of them knew that they didn't have anything to do with his death, it's like a low stakes Rashomon. Uh, that's like a really fun version of it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, speaking of getting to see actors do something a little bit different, it's uh, Michael Shannon as Walt. He he's kind of playing kind of a you know uh, a, a, I don't know if nebbish is the right word, but someone who's uh, clearly not the most confident person in the world, mm-hmm. who's a little shaken from his. Um, business relationship with Harlan over the years and uh, it's fun to see Michael Shannon in a role that isn't menacing yeah I think the uh, the mustache and goatee does a lot of that making him look and his clothes making him look like covering his menace up like putting a, a fright wig on Frankenstein so it makes it a little <laughs> sillier yeah and then we have Chris Evans as Ransom who is uh, I, I you know, you try not to read too much into what's off screen, but this just looks like a guy who is thrilled to not be in a Captain America uniform. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, you just don't, you don't know how much you missed him being his sarcastic. Uh, you know, it's what he was known for before being the earnest Captain America, especially like, uh, you know, I think not another teen movie super underrated, and he's so <laughs> yeah. good in that. It, the smarmy um, um, satire of that movie, smarmy. Uh, I can't figure out the word. Um, when you're making a goof of a movie, spoof, <laughs> spoof. I couldn't figure out the word spoof. <laughs> it's like a goof, but <laughs> a silly goof, a spoof. A silly goof. Yeah. He's also in. Uh, he's in uh, Scott Pilgrim, right? Yeah. 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 In kind of a similar, not another teen movie, like playing it straight, but you know, so silly for how straight he's playing it, kind of thing. And here, he just has like a lot of fun with his uh, dialogue. Yeah. Uh, unbeknownst to Blanc, after the party, Harlan's nurse Marta Cabrera mixed up his medications and apparently administered an overdose of morphine. She could not find the antidote, leaving Harlan. Minutes to live. Knowing that Marta's mother is an undocumented immigrant, Harlan prevented Marta from calling for help and instead gave her instructions to create a false alibi to save her family from scrutiny before slitting his own throat. Harlan's very elderly mother saw Marta carrying out his instructions but mistook her for ransom. So, yeah, here we have the decision to, you know, give it away, to, mm-hmm. to, to answer the whodunit. Um, and we also have the introduction of Marta, which we can we can touch on. Um, but first off, um, what what do you think about that decision to to go ahead and sum up Harlan's murder to to let you know exactly what happened in that room uh, that early in the movie? It uh, I think it's pretty it's pretty smart. It lets you know that. Uh, you know, like you said, there's got to be something else to this movie. It kind of lets you know it's it's playing on a different level. Like we're gonna give this away, so look for something else. Yeah. You know, look that there's gonna be a larger game at play here of what the movie's trying to do. And uh, you know, the Marta scene uh, to from my memory, it's most of what we get from that thing is. You know, Benoit saying, you know, she, he hears she has a regurgitative reaction to mistruth and <laughs> just like the 
the gentleman foghorn leghorn that we love him for and then we have the coin flipping and then all of this is happening as the coins going down and she's remembering all this stuff it's uh it's very uh I don't know. It's very athletic screenwriting to do this kind of cross, cross uh, plotting of the timelines and kind of it's making a, um, it's kind of a making an obvious show of like how clever I am to, to kind of timestamp it with the coin flip of letting you know like this is all the stuff that I'm doing. I'm crossing back and forth, so I think like stylistically it's it's really fun and he lets you know that he is having fun writing it and uh, um, lets you know that there's, there's more going on that you need to pay attention to the kind of the things you've already heard. If you think you like, you were looking for clues of, especially if you went into this movie cold, if you're looking for clues for how, how it happened or, you know, is he really dead or something like that? Did he fake his death? That kind of stuff, like throw that away and also think about the first part of the movie again. So I think it's pretty, uh, it's pretty, pretty interesting and, and, uh, yeah, kind of separates it from other kinds of movies and maybe the movie you thought it was going to be. I think aside from the, the tone and the cast, which are, which are probably my favorite aspects of this movie, I think this decision is, is up there with, mm-hmm. uh, is one of my favorite things about this movie. And I think it's, I love the way it kind of pulls the rug out and says, that's, that's not what this movie is about. And I think with without Benoit in the movie, if this was just um, Lakeith Stanfield and the cops investigating her uh, or investigating, you know, the the death, then it becomes much more of a a focus on her evading, um, you know, the uh, the the truth. Mm-hmm. But with Benoit in the movie. I think you you kind of the 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 early parts of this movie established that Benoit is certainly eccentric, but he's also um, competent, and he is going to stay on the case to to you know discover whatever needs to be discovered. And I think we're along for the ride with him as well. Like we we're we're following Marta now that we've seen what happened with her, and we want her to. She's presented as the protagonist, so we want her to to get away. We have a connection with Marta. Mm-hmm. Um, we understand that it was an accident from the flashback, and uh, but I think Benoit's presence in the movie allows us to also kind of see things from his angle as well. And I think his presence keeps it a bit of a mystery. Like I think it it maintains the whodunit. I think without him, we might just focus on can she get away with it, but with him there. I think that's what plants the seed of there is more to uncover here and there's more to peel away. And I think, and like, thank God Benoit's here to do it with his ridiculous Southern accent. And, uh, um, by the way, as uh, I'm, you know, born in Georgia and raised in Georgia, you've, uh, lived in the South most of your life, uh, mm-hmm. even though you weren't born here. Um, what did you make of uh, Daniel Craig's Southern accent? <laughs> It made me. It made me remember the SNL sketch of. Do you ever see that of Daniel Craig hosted around this time this movie came out, and it was like he. It was a sketch where he was bringing on his dialect coach, and it'd be like you know more oh molasses in your mouth. <laughs> like that's what his dialect coach was telling him for the audition. 
Um, it just kind of make me think make me think of that. Um, the first line he says, the way he says it, you go, "Oh my gosh, what is he doing?" <laughs> and then by the end of the movie, um, I guess Daniel Craig is skilled enough, or the screenwriting is skilled enough that you stop noticing it, and it's either. I don't even really know what it is. If it's not played as comical and thick, or it's just you've become inerd to it <laughs> over like two hours. It's but, uh, uh, it's kind I, of like I know. A, a hurdle that, like, I think the movie puts up a lot of hurdles to clear for fun, and one of them I think is that accent. I think, <laughs> like, uh, like in Ocean's Eleven, like the nose plays. <laughs> I think the accent plays by the end. I think there's a purpose to it, and you know, at least for myself, I can say for myself, I kind of got over the uh, the thick ac- affectation of it. <laughs> I know exactly what you mean when you when you talk about that first line. Yeah, uh, I remember sitting in the theater and just being like, "Oh, what? No, come on, this is gonna." You know, sometimes really... you sometimes you hear something and you just like you know you just it just hits weird. You're like, "Oh, someone can say something a little weird." That's kind of what it does. You know what it reminded me of is it reminded me of that that Brad Pitt Netflix movie. Where I couldn't oh, watch the movie because yeah. of his accent. Um, Is that uh, War Machine? War Machine. <laughs> oh, gosh. I remember trying to watch that movie and just like 10 minutes and just be like, nah, just nope, 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 nope. <laughs> pull, pull, pull in the ripcord. Yeah. I got to I gotta bail on this. Brad Pitt's uh, going to have a stroke for two hours. No, thank you. And I was worried. I was worried sitting there that this was going to be uh, that bad. But it's just so endearing. Daniel Craig is so endearing that yeah it's it's uh, it's caricaturish that I mean I don't think I've ever met someone who actually sounds that way but I also I don't really get too I try not to get too worked up over um, accent accuracy in movies because I think that's really overblown people yeah. when people are like, hey, can you believe this person's Boston accent in the movie and like I don't know if that really matters most of the time, but like GQ or Variety will have like a accent teacher grades accents, and I'm like, I mean anything out of context, sure, but like like this shows like the context of just being with this character and enjoying it, you know, it kind of just works. Yeah. And I yeah. do like uh, I I also agree with you to your earlier point of it. He seems extraneous a little bit at first. But he's uh, it's kind of a movie with two dueling and then collaborative protagonists. Yeah. Um, you you get a lot of scenes where they're they're kind of they have the POV and they kind of hand it back and forth, kind of like a book that has alternating narrators a little bit. And I think you definitely need him, um, because the state trooper and the lieutenant. There's no way that they are going to be as competent as a mystery writer who can, like, as the movie says, like, he thinks of twists and he kind of plots them out and he can do it super easily, you know, write them in, like, six months or something, you know, from thought to uh, to being published. So it would be a little, it would kind of be a little bit of a stretch if we think that this just, this lieutenant and the state trooper are figuring out this elaborate cover job for all this and the mythology of like the last of the gentleman sleuths you kind of need that you need him to to um 
you know, they're kind of hairy liming him, even though he's in the background of everybody talks about him and how great he is before you even see him really do anything. He's silent for like almost the first half hour of the movie, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, he just sits in the shadows. And I love the way he unnerves the... Uh, I love the, the, the little touches, like the slamming of the piano key. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I tried to... Could you could could you put your finger on exactly why he he hit the piano keys in those uh, in those moments? I think uh, I think I, I remember reading something on IMDB or Wikipedia about it is that he hits a piano key that is a cue for the state trooper or for the lieutenant played by Keith Lucky Stanfield to ask ask something. Um, I forgot exactly what it is, but it's kind of like a a jog for them to kind of interrupt the person they're talking to. Huh. Okay. I just, I was looking for something that the, uh, the witness or, or the, whoever was being interrogated, if you use that word, uh, I, I thought it was reactive in some way. And that's what I kept looking for. I wasn't thinking about it from, from an angle of uh, a message to, uh, detective Stanfield, as I'm going to call him because I don't know his name. Uh, I mean, um, it's, I think it's probably both. I think Benoit hears something and wants the state trooper to interrupt or just interrupt their train of thought so that they can talk about something else or whatever. So I think it, it kind of serves both purposes there. And I do like how there's the, uh, you know, another way that the, the movie, um, like you're talking about earlier with, with um, the either the tweet or reading the actual New Yorker, is how they all finally stop and ask who uh, Benoit Blanc is in the background. Mm-hmm. There's Linda that's like, uh, you know, can like, who are you? And Joni is like, can I pause for a second? <laughs> and then Richard is the Richard's one the best. that says like, uh, who the F is that guy? <laughs> <laughs> Which he's, by that point in the movie, we're all wondering who the F that is that guy. So it's great. Yeah. Um, Okay, and so, also just sorry, a great Richard go for it. is like just a just a beautiful poke at just white people in general is you know, they're talking about Marta and Richard. They're all and this is, you know, definitely on purpose and pretty easy to catch, but none of them can really identify the country she's from. They say Paraguay, Ecuador, you know, all kinds of things, Mexico. Uruguay. Um, Richard uh, is, then... is trying to be the uh like the uh the I don't know, getting liberal points with saying immigrants, we get the job done. And then like points to the state trooper, Hamilton, (laughs) (laughs) the the quote from him or from a song in Hamilton. And then Lakeith wants to go on and the state trooper saying like, I loved it. Like, of course, yeah, as, as white people, we do that. Yeah. I love the way it kind of, uh, takes, you know, obviously it, this, this film is no fan of uh, the right wing, but it's also uh, likes taking its shots at, you know, um, uh, I don't know the uh, I don't know what what to call this little branch of the left that they yeah uh, maybe like a virtue signaling liberals, where yeah. like you know trying to get the points of like you know. You know, we hire immigrant and she's part of the family. Like everyone's so quick to say, you know, cover up the part that she works for the family by trying to be inclusive. But that inclusivity is really like desperate. And, 
yeah, it's it's a it does a pretty good job of skewering that part too. Yeah, the virtue signaling is is right on the money because uh, it reminds me of of a, a very early scene in the movie when Marta arrives uh, at the house to um, be questioned by uh, Benoit Blanc. Mm-hmm. Um, the uh, the cops refer to Marta as the help, and the um, the granddaughter Harlan's granddaughter is yeah. out there, and, and yeah, and she she gets really offended. By, by them referring to Marta as the help. Mm-hmm. And yet, uh, and I think that's sort of generally the attitude that a lot of the, the Thromby family likes to, to sort of portray themselves as. Um, and yet during the, uh, during the party, there's a scene where uh, they, uh, they, they literally hand her a dish to be taken away, mm-hmm. uh, even though she's a nurse. Mm-hmm. She's, she is not... A maid. She is not the help. She is a nurse, and um, so you know, in those moments, they would they they do treat her like the help, even though they would uh, um, you know feign offense anytime uh, yeah. someone else suggests that they would talk, tell their friends that she's more than just a nurse. But you know, actions speak louder than their the words that they're signaling. And they also like say she's like a member of the family uh, until the will is read, mm-hmm. <laughs> and then everything everything changes. Um, but before we get any further, uh, a lot of my notes are just, and we talked about this before we started recording, but a lot of my notes are just quotes that I love from the movie. And so, mm-hmm. with the introduction of Marta, I do want to mention this, and um, it's one of my favorite movie cameos in uh, recent years. And I'm sure you know what I'm going for here, but yep. uh, at, at Marta's uh, apartment where she lives with her mother, uh, her mother is watching something on like an iPad maybe, or it's like a TV show, maybe on a TV. And uh, um, it's, it's like, a, it's clearly some sort of cop show that mm-hmm. she's watching. And uh, I love the quote because you can, Ryan Johnson turns up the volume, I think, just for this one quote, which is uh, a voice yelling, we have the nanny cam footage uh, <laughs> in the middle of an interrogation. And I, I cackle at that every time I hear it. And the voice is Joseph Gordon-Levitt, mm-hmm. who is uh, just making a, a faceless cameo in the movie, recording this background cop show noise. Yep, his old buddy Ryan Johnson since the brick days. Yeah, I also write, wrote down that quote too. We have the nanny cam. <laughs> Jogo Love, great great cameo. Um, before we before we move on from Marta, uh, I'm I'm curious what you think about her condition, her regurgitative condition, because is is it clever? It does it. Does it make Ryan Johnson's storytelling harder, like more of a challenge, or does it make it easier? Like, is it is it a crutch or is it clever? Because I'm, I, I don't really have a strong opinion on it. It's just mm-hmm. something I've wondered about. Like, this is a, this is an interesting decision, and it makes her. It's a rather unique quality to assign to a character, and making her her own lie detector test is is that. I was curious about the 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 writing of it and and whether you think that makes it harder or more complex or or easier. Yeah, it is. I think it is. It is both a shortcut that is also a hurdle. 
and self-consciously so. I think it is like a self-consciously winking thing of a unbelievable condition that makes the plot easy to get through. But at the same time, after you know what Benoit uses it for, it is the hurdle to kind of do athletic screenwriting around of you know, okay, this is why he's using her, and this is how we can get de- some details we know out, and we need her to lie to Benoit, even though we know this, and she needs to lie throughout the movie. So I think it's, I think it's, uh, I'm going to say fun again. I think it's Ryan Johnson having a lot of fun by writing that in there and kind of thinking like, okay, how can I do both sides of it now? Um just like the Benoit Blanc being such a cartoon character when you first meet him, I think it, uh, you know, I'm, I'm kind of in the bag for this movie. I think it works. Uh, it works pretty well. And I never, it never takes me all that out of it. Maybe the first time, you know, I go, okay. <laughs> you know, you kind of just like check it a little bit like, all right. <laughs> we're, we're mostly playing it playing it straight in terms of things that are possible. And there's this thing that's like super convenient to the plot, but then I think is, is fun how inconvenient it is to the character. So I don't know. I'm kind of playing both sides of that in, in summary, I think it's kind of, it kind of fun and it's work. It works. Yeah, I I agree. Uh, Continuing with the plot, Marta cannot lie without vomiting, which we just referenced. Uh, So she gives true but incomplete answers when Blanc questions her. She agrees to assist in Blanc's investigation and conceals evidence of her actions as they search the the property. When Harlan's will is read, to everyone's astonishment, Marta is the sole beneficiary. Ransom helps her escape the family's wrath, but manipulates her into confessing to him. He offers his help in exchange for a share of the inheritance. The other thrombies try to persuade Marta to renounce the inheritance. Walt threatens to expose her mother's precarious immigration status. So we have um, the the reading of the will here. And uh, I mean, at first off, we have the investigation where they're kind of going from, from place to place, walking through the property, which is, it's fun. It's fun to watch Marta have to kind of play dumb in certain spots and, and trample through her uh her mud footsteps or her uh, footprints from, from the night before. Yeah. That, what did you say? Oh no, Marta, stop. <laughs> <laughs> and I love how he just gives her the benefit of the doubt too. Uh, yeah. Well, just like, you know, he, he has, it's, it's a little confusing given that the ending of the movie, I mean, not to spoil it, but I'm hoping everyone has seen the movie by now he says he knew immediately she was implicated by a by her sneakers right and he still um i don't know the movie i guess kind of sets him up maybe just sets up the audience to have him be as maybe ignorant or naive that someone like her could be implicated given how invisible she is to the family and to the to the state troopers in much that as much as they don't, you know, put too much emphasis on her as a suspect or anything. Um, there are, there are parts that are a little, I guess, uh, just thinking about it now on the third time, difficult to see what Benoit was doing. If he thought that she was implicated in her, mur- in his murder. 
I think uh, something that makes sense. I'm kind of blowing up your whole plot here, but the the film is super recursive, so it's kind of hard to yeah. go straight through it. Um, using her, you know, regurgitative reaction to mistruthing as a lie detector to try to catch how she was implied in the murder, as well as anyone, any other part of the family. You know, that makes sense of why she's there for the investigation and then he can also ask her questions about what's what's going on it uh you know some of those scenes are just a little i guess interesting with that context yeah it's i i wonder so like it seems like he is never really that concerned that she might have murdered harlan Mm -hmm. even though even though he sees the blood or claims to have seen the blood and he because he does kind of make Marta his his you know his partner of sorts mm-hmm. in this little investigation, and he's always talking to her, and he knows he, I think he does believe in her regurgitative uh, condition, uh, and I think he uses that at times to confirm things. But why why does he eliminate her as a suspect? Is my question. Uh, other than yeah, I guess he does mention early that. She doesn't have any motive because mm-hmm. this is her employer and she has nothing to gain. Right. Does do you think he changes a bit at the reading of the will? That's it's it's hard to it's also hard for me to kind of remember the sequence of everything. Alright, so like yeah, they go through the grounds and they do the tape with the magnetic degausser and everything like that before the will reading. That, that must be it, but as being, like, such a brilliant sleuth, you would think that he wouldn't just go with Occam's razor of, like, the simplest explanation is what happened. You know, you think he'd be involved in fanciful mysteries to be written up in the New York Times about things. It, it is interesting why he makes that call, um... Ruling maybe, her maybe, out. Maybe part of it is that he... He trusts the maybe he trusts the police in a basic sense, which is the police investigated and ruled that it was a suicide. So maybe he maybe uh, Benoit just kind of always believes that the hand that you know sliced the neck was Harlan's hand. Mm-hmm. I don't know, and I think- that's never established. This is just me trying to uh, theorize here. Yeah. Plus the thing. You know, he seems like a person who likes puzzles, and the puzzle that brings him into the world of the Thrombies is he does not know who hired him. That's so right. he's kind of, he, it may be that he's trying to figure out that first, which he thinks is the implication of the true killer, and maybe he deduced that it couldn't have been Marta who hired him, or, I, I don't know, he gets a little, uh, gets a little three-dimensional thinking that's the thing that that may be it it's it's that he he knows that marta's involved but he knows that someone else knows that marta's involved Mm -hmm. and that is sort of what what sticks in his craw if you will for for most of the movie which which i actually love that that's that's technically the whodunit Mm -hmm. the the whodunit is who hired ben law because that's what it comes back to in the end which is he he just he's like the nothing Nothing makes sense until I figure that out. Um, so that's a good point. Yeah. Uh, um, 
The will reading is delightful, by the way, because all these mm-hmm. family members think so. Harlan like writes this letter to the family where he basically says, "I'm, I'm cutting you blood suckers off, and uh, I'm helping you. Uh, this is for your own good." And they're all like nodding, thinking he's not talking about them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so Linda is like, "Yes, yes." Good for you, Harlan. Cut off Joni. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, Joni's probably thinking, that's right. Yeah, Walt has ridden your tails long enough mm-hmm. and, uh, and and so on. And so I love how sure they are that they're like, yeah, I'm, I'm going to get mine. But uh, but good for Harlan. Yeah, they're all deluded in their self-made myth- mythologies that, he, well, he couldn't be talking about me. I've made something of myself. <laughs> you yeah. Know? And, and Ransom is just sitting over there because he's already Harlan's already told him what he's going to do, and so uh, Ransom's just sitting over there, eating cookies, just having a good time. Mm-hmm. And I love. Um, I was I was going to say I love some of the filmmaking here too, is uh, especially the sound design of the uh, the knife going through the sealed envelope. Like that's essentially the the murder of the family right there, and it's just like <laughs> it's one of those things where it like resounds like a tuning fork almost, <clears throat> cutting through the sealed mm-hmm. envelope. It's a it's a real nice touch there of like that's really the besides the knife that kills Harlan, it's the the most consequential knife that's in the movie because the uh, the knife that's uh, in the implied in the end of the movie in the uh, the murder attempt. Turns out to be, you know, I don't know, flaccid, <laughs> retractable. Turns out to not be a real knife. And this real right. knife kind of gets the job done by knocking this family apart. Uh, I believe this is where uh, they have the, the big family yelling match as well. And uh, I, I, correct me if I'm wrong. Is this when Walt delivers my favorite line of the movie, uh, which is, Screaming in Harlan's or in uh, Ransom's face, want some more cookies? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like dumps all the cookies. <laughs> like he he's so angry, he just doesn't even know. Uh, there's there's, I, I love how dumb the uh, the insult is. <laughs> um, <laughs> it doesn't even make sense. It's not insulting in any way. Want some more cookies? <laughs> Uh, which it, it lets Michael Shannon be Michael Shannon for just a minute. And I love it. Mm-hmm. I think they said a lot of that was improv. Um, <laughs> some of that screaming and isolating some of the stuff they're talking over top of each other is pretty, pretty funny. If, if Michael Shannon grabbed a box of cookies and shoved them in my face, screaming, want some more cookies, I would easily break character i i'm amazed that no one else that, that chris evans did not because that's uh that that has to be quite a moment as an actor to have mm-hmm. that happen <laughs> um and anyway I'll, also like uh, uh, after the uh, the will reading when when uh marta's trying to escape you have the uh the camera which has been like very um kind of very traditional aside from some kind of dutch angling especially like when we first see harlan's body we have some dutch angles but besides that it's a lot of like static shots nothing too nothing too active um 
it it goes into handheld cam. It kind of reminds me of like they're trying to do like a zombie movie, and that's how they're kind of like trying to approach her with like arms flailing, like trying to get her. Is it becomes like a little horror movie for Marta, like escaping these zombies, and we got this this like shaky cam going on. It's just kind of a just a nice little fun touch. Yeah. Um. Also, I, I really, I really enjoyed the scene of Marta and Ransom at the bar. Mm-hmm. And um, I like that. That's the first. That's the first bit of non-score music we get in the movie. I think is uh, Gordon Lightfoot's "Sundown." Mm-hmm playing just over the speakers and it's uh i don't know there's something about that scene that i I really i love the way it is a change of pace from what came before in the movie um and then as you're watching that scene having seen the movie before so if you're on a rewatch watching that scene chris evans is fantastic because he is slowly piecing together what actually happened in the room up there and realizing that uh, Marta did not actually uh, kill Harlan or, or, you know, cause Harlan's death. And so it watching him um, kind of pick at a napkin or something on the table, mm-hmm. sort of stare a hole into the table while Marta is, is telling her story. It's, it's really good. Like it's, uh, you know, in the first watch, he seems like her ally. Mm-hmm. And uh, on a rewatch, it's um, it really doesn't play that way. It, it plays like him trying to figure out how he's going to get out of uh, or, or get his money now. Yeah, he's trying to re- relay his trap, like re- restring the spider web of how to undo Marta from from getting everything. And yeah, you're right. Seeing that a second time, it's it's kind of great two level acting of yeah. playing two things at the same time. Um, Kind of figuring, uh, figuring that out. Oh, and just thinking of the Gordon Lightfoot, it's just, just another like little little nice touch that uh, it's got the line "Till I find you creeping around my back stairs," and that's how, you know, Marta gets up and kind of undoes the crime. Is going up the like the back way to go into the room. I I like to think. Uh, you know, a lot of the stuff here is very deliberate to be clues for the second yeah. time around that you could have picked up on, but you know, was probably you know pretty pretty tough to pick on pick up on the first time that you enjoy the second it, time around. It, it's all very cute and winking, mm-hmm. and yeah, just being cheeky. Mm-hmm. Um, so Marta receives an anonymous blackmail note with a partial photocopy of Harlan's toxicology report. She and Ransom drive to the medical examiner's office, but the building has been burned down. Marta receives an anonymous email proposing a rendezvous with the blackmailer. Blanc and the police spot Marta and Ransom, and after a brief car chase, Ransom is arrested. Blanc explains that Harlan's mother saw Ransom climbing down from Harlan's room the night he died, which I'll only pause uh, just to say... Another one of my favorite lines is that was the dumbest police chase ever. <laughs> yeah, and some background to that. Apparently, Ryan Johnson was writing the screenplay when, uh, you know, and there was supposed to be an elaborate car chase that was played straight, and Baby Driver had just come out, <laughs> and he he decided to make it a silly car chase and not even try to be as action packed as that because he said like, well, I can't top that. <laughs> 
<laughs> and that's why, <laughs> uh, you know, it is, and it's it's uh, declared in the movie to be that was the dumbest police chase. <laughs> <laughs> Um, Marta goes to the rendezvous and discovers that Fran has been drugged. She hesitates, but ultimately performs CPR and calls an ambulance. Marta confesses to Blanc, though Ransom has already informed on her, and decides to tell the family she caused Harlan's death. At the house, she finds a copy of the full toxicology report hidden in Fran's cannabis stash. Blanc reads it, discovering it showed no morphine in Harlan's system, and interrupts Marta before she can confess. He reveals his deductions. After Ransom discovered Harlan was leaving everything to Marta, he swapped the contents of Harlan's medication vials and stole the antidote so that Marta would kill Harlan and thereby become ineligible to claim the inheritance by the Slayer rule. Marta, however, actually gave Harlan the correct medication, recognizing it by the appearance and texture of the fluid, and only concluded she had poisoned him after reading the label. When the death was reported a suicide, Ransom anonymously hired Blanc to expose Marta. Fran saw Ransom uh, tampering with the crime scene and sent him the blackmail note. After Ransom realized Marta had given Harlan the correct medication, he forwarded the blackmail note to her and burned down the medical examiner's office to destroy evidence of Marta's innocence. He overdosed Fran with morphine, intending for Marta to get caught with Fran's corpse. Marta tricks Ransom into confessing by lying that Fran has survived and will implicate him. Then she vomits on him, revealing the lie. (laughs) Enraged, Ransom attacks Marta with a knife from Harlan's collection, which turns out to be a retractable stage knife. Having recorded Ransom's confession and witnessed his attempted murder of Marta, the police arrest him. Blanc reveals to Marta that he realized early on that she played a part in Harlan's death, noting a small spot of blood on her shoe. Linda finds a note from Harlan revealing her husband's adultery. As Ransom is taken into custody, Marta watches the thrombies leave from the balcony of what is now her mansion, sipping from her coffee cup in her house, her rules. Mm-hmm. Uh, I forget what the, the last bit of the coffee cup is, but it's a great ending. It's a great ending. It is. Um, so, uh, so yeah, the, the, the unraveling of the plot the uh, um, or not unraveling, but uh, I guess uh, what I'm what I mean is um, Blanc putting it all together. Um, yeah, the filmmaker no longer withholding; he is now giving us all the details for the yeah. the uh, you know all of these movies have it. The investigator <laughs> supreme tells us how smart he is and figured it out. But but does require it's part of that dual protagonist thing is it does require Marta to think on her feet, you know, similar to Ransom thinking on his feet in the diner, uh, in the bar, eating when he's hearing the story, he kind of has to improvise. She does too, you know, with a call that comes from the hospital and kind of thinks on her feet about how to get out of the situation, kind of the. Um, it ties a nice, neat bow around the theme of the the games people play, and Ransom is is trying to be a methodical player, kind of like his Go game with mm-hmm. with Harlan, which is why he always lost, which is why he he gets um, he gets uh, side or his playing gets sidetracked when Harlan, instead of just dying, decides to cut his own throat, which requires him to, you know. He has to, um, he's got to pivot his plan and Marta does the same thing, but, uh, 
besides that one lie, Benoit wraps it up by saying, you know, you won by playing, not playing the game Harlan's way, but yours, you're a good person. She, she says in the initial go game that, you know, she makes pretty patterns and that's kind of, you know, it's a um, symbol for her, her morality is she, she tries to, she makes pretty patterns. She makes like the right decision. She pivots on heart on Ransom's plan with the, um, with the Fran is she actually calls it in and has her taken to a hospital, which gives her the leverage to, uh, to get heart, to get uh, Ransom there by doing the right thing, being a good person. Uh, it's just all very, it's all very neat right there. Mm-hmm. It's really impressive the way it is all tied together and the mm-hmm. way it's, it, it is all put together at the end because there are, there are so many winding loose threads in this movie that it's, uh, you know, it's, it's easy to, uh, I, I don't know. I feel like movies have, have tried this, um, and it's it's really hard to tie it all together, at least in a meaningful way. And uh, it's it's really great when when Benoit does it. Mm-hmm. So uh, so yeah, the ending of this movie is uh, it, also I, I really love that we get another song at the end, and it's uh, the Rolling Stones. I mean, you, you can always sway me mm-hmm. with a good Rolling Stones song. Um, yeah, if it works for Marty, <laughs> <laughs> it can work for us. Um, okay, so uh, it. <clears throat> and for the ending, it's like for this kind of movie, it's kind of just it either hits you or it doesn't for for like whodunits and murder mysteries of mm-hmm. feeling satisfying. You can't really describe what would be satisfying. Is you kind of just have to. It either feels that yes. way or it doesn't. And I can imagine that would be probably a challenge in the editing and the screenwriting and the performance to kind of make it, you know, there's a lot of convoluted twists and exposition dumps and, uh, I don't know, charades that are going on to have the final thing play out. But um, I guess it either, either hits you or it doesn't as satisfying. And it, it just, everything kind of comes together to hit, it at least hit me as, Mm-hmm. satisfying um and that's really the if if the movie doesn't land this then it kind of invalidates a lot of the experience um i'll just say as kind of a degree of difficulty thing i, I was impressed with with that of how many balls they have up in the air and other than like a action movie or a, i guess a romantic comedy or something i think this it's especially tough to end a yes. whodunit um, to be clever enough, but not have to be impossible and to satisfy, I guess, all the balls that are up in the air. So I, I found that part pretty, pretty impressive. I don't know how, if it doesn't work, you fix it. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. So I think it's, I think it's clear we both, really really like this movie um i, I mean mm-hmm. i've watched it four times in, in two years <laughs> of course i really like this movie um <laughs> so uh let's let's move on to uh, thematic talk so this is where you always basically school me on what the themes of the movie i just watched are um because this is this is not a movie where um you know the themes are in your face 
So mm-hmm. uh, what 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 do you have? Uh, uh, kind of like the whole exposition of how it's revealing the different ways that the uh, characters play the games. I think the the biggest theme theme in the movie is games and playing by the rules or playing your own way. You know, that's how Marta wins by being a good person, by being a good nurse and playing different from not playing out of self-interest, but doing the right thing. Um, it's a morality mm-hmm. play there. And uh, I think what the movie's saying is just to be reductive is I guess be a good person <laughs> don't be like the thrombies and the the Drysdales of trying to you know game your way out of your um, game your way into having a legitimate business or thinking that you actually built something when you didn't um, trying to shortcut things or or cheat things um, Marta wins by playing her way by just uh kind of playing by the rules by morality um i'd say that and it also references uh you know a lot of the characters you know where i'm talking about like they're deluded and have their own self mythologies and they're portraying characters that really aren't um i know that uh, we have some experience playing uh confidence games that are fun he references like a mafia game that the that the family played where that's how he knows about her uh puking right. while people throw up um trying to present yourself as not the villain versus who you really are it's you know ransom's playing a game the whole movie and it shifts who he's trying to portray and who he's trying to trick and you know changing up the rules um I just think it, the game, the whole movie is essentially a game, and it's really wrapped up in the games people play. Um, besides that, I, I, there's not too much. <laughs> that's where I always say. I feel like every podcast I, I say at some point, there's that. I don't know. There's really too much else. It's a fun movie. <laughs> that's that's the biggest one I could I could try to draw out of it. Um, being a the the whole movie is a morality game. I like it. You're adding depth to this movie that I just merely loved for its surface-level entertainment. Um, or I'm playing a game of creating depth where there was none. <laughs> ah. I am certainly <laughs> losing that game. Um, okay, so uh, so you know we the whole point of this podcast is to 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 talk about the movies uh, and their. Uh, their nominations at the Academy Awards. And so uh, Knives Out was nominated for just a single little Academy Award Best Original Screenplay at the uh, 2019 Oscars. Um, It lost. It was nominated up against Marriage Story, 1917, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and the eventual winner, Parasite, which was the big winner of the night. Um, So... I mean, this is this is unfair, but uh, should should I feel like Parasite's like one of the best screenplays of the decade, so it's it's a little unfair. Um, yeah, but it's like you played a great game, and the other, your opponent played right. the perfect game, kind right. of thing. So I, I don't think I don't think Knives Out should have won this award, but I'm very happy it was nominated because I do think it's uh, it's one of the best screenplays of the year. Um, do you, 
were you happy with its nomination? Do you think the nomination was earned? And uh, what do you think about the screenplay in general? Yeah, I, I love the nomination, especially for this type of movie where a fun movie can get in, where it's not all self-serious. And like we were talking in the beginning, uh, movies that are shooting for greatness and shooting for glory, getting rewarded, or sh- stories that are only about, you know, they are worthwhile, but are only about plumbing trauma for making you mm-hmm. feel something emotional is like this one is best screenplay because it's really good at being a screenplay. Like it's intricate and tricky and fun and just yeah. works. I agree. It, it, it's a, it, um, it's different maybe, kind of uh, screenplay. And I like that. Yeah. Maybe a better question for this one. Like we always say, do you think it should have won? I think it's clear for both of us. We don't think so. Parasites like an all timer screenplay. Um, what about if there was a second place, if there was a silver medal, um, would, if uh, Parasite gets the gold, would Knives Out, how would Knives Out do against Marriage Story 1917 and Once Upon a Time well, in Hollywood? Well, I mean, first off, there's the question of how to evaluate a screenplay. Like, do I need to sit down and read the screenplay to, to, to judge this? Or can I, or, or, I mean, this is the award that started off in the early days as best story, right? So, mm-hmm. I, I mean, am I evaluating the screenplay based on what I see in the movie? On what, on, you know, dialogue, storytelling, that sort of thing? Or do I need to sit down? And the reason I'm asking this is because I really just want to, punt 1917 uh, out my window as far away from me as possible <laughs> yeah it, it's clearly it's it's last place for me and it was kind of a curious inclusion uh, but i mean then again and i know we 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 hashed this out on on talkie talk back in the day over you know this award and I remember i think tj made the point that um you know 1917 the so many of the details uh, that are impressive about the way that movie is shot are in the screenplay. And so, you know, it. this comes down to the question of, do I need to read a screenplay to vote for this category? Um, and I, I mean, I think every, you know, pretend voter or real voter just has to make their own uh, sort of path. But uh, what are your thoughts on that, David? Sure. Uh, a nice non-selection for the silver for silver medal punt again. Um, yeah, I agree. There's like, like a 1917 and uh, those kind of movies are about, I don't know. It's, it's, it's building the frame to execute and you have to execute perfectly. I, I have always thought of 1917 as like a cinematographer's movie where the setup was part of it, but most of the, I guess, uh, I don't think that movie is brilliant, but most of the success of that movie is the execution in figuring out the the blocking and the, you know, how to do it with the people who are on the ground doing it versus some of these screenplays are, they are brilliant at the setup, I guess. So it's their successes starts when it gets set up versus the success of 1917 is in executing. I don't know. Kind of a non-answer. I'll, answer I'll give my too. answer. Well, oh man, the silver is tough. I think, I think it comes down to knives out or marriage story for my silver medal. And 
Um, mm-hmm. Even though I I I, have, I really adore Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, that's a movie that's really grown on me. I watched it a second time last year, and I, I just I loved it. And but I don't know that the screenplay is necessarily what I loved most about it. Um, it yeah, for for like for 1917, I love the cinematography for the best. For Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, I probably either liked the direction or the performance the best in the screenplay did not jump out to me. You know, this saying that as a, I'm not a screenwriter, nor am I a film critic. So I can just say based on my experience. So I'm in the same boat. It's either marriage story, which I thought was phenomenal and knives out, which I think is also kind of phenomenal in such different ways too. It's really, it is, it is tough Mm -hmm. to award that silver medal. Um, I think, I don't know. Maybe maybe I, I reward big picture ideas more than I reward um, finely tuned craft sometimes. And so I think I might give the nod to Knives Out only because it is a fresh take on a uh, what, what could be seen as a stale genre in the fact that Hollywood doesn't really go to that well much anymore. Uh, you don't get a lot of whodunit movies. Um at least in the old, the old fashioned, like, you know, murder in a mansion type movies. And, uh, you know, marriage story, I think was, is Bombach. Um, I, it's probably the best script of his that I've, that I've, um, seen on, on screen. But, uh, I don't know. It, to, to, to me, that one feels more like perfect, perfecting something that he'd been working on for a while. It, it's, I don't know. It's tough to, it's tough to choose one and not the other, but uh, I, I think knives out just because it is making something great out of a genre that, uh, we don't typically see great things made from anymore. Uh, sure. What, what's your pick? And I think I would go cool. marriage story for my silver here. I think it makes something great out of something that we see that we've seen before is we've seen the, uh, the, the love story, the love story gone bad and all the shrapnel in between. And it's, uh, to me, it's genuinely heartbreaking and, uh, completely humane on every side of the, the, the breakup. I think it's a movie that made me laugh and made me cry and I don't know, maybe I'm just a sucker for the full range of emotion you could wring out of it. I said that, you know, loving that they nominated Knives Out and say, you can't just do trauma and emotion. And I'm saying this one gave me emotion, but there you go. I mean, Oscar voters are hypocrites. I mean, this is like a, a 50.0001% towards Knives Out for me. <laughs> and, a, you know, 49.99999 mm-hmm. for, uh, for Mirrored Story, so... I don't. Right. Uh, I don't blame you for choosing that at all. That's a solid choice. Um, sure. So this is, a, I think, a, a fun one for Knobs Out. Should it have been nominated any in uh, any other categories? Yeah, this is where I went down a rabbit hole. Uh, I'll say my first thing that I think it probably should have been in Best Picture as one of the. Um, I think there were nine nominees. I think if there were ten nominees, it would have been in there. Um, it had a lot of broad support. I, I have some of the stuff on our notes, but it was a AFI Top 10 movie, National Board of Review Top 10. 
in the Producers Guild Top 10, uh, Writers Guild nominee, Editors Guild nominee, Golden Globe nominee, for whatever that's worth. Um, with Daniel Craig and Ana de Armas also being nominated for performance. Uh, costume Design nominee, it actually won that for Contemporary Design. Production Design nominee, love the mm-hmm. production design in it. And Casting Guild so from that, you know, I'm a weird Oscar person where I keep track of all that stuff, especially when nominations are about to come out, you know, kind of read the tea leaves of where I think the nominations are going to go. And looking at uh, my spreadsheet with all the all the precursor stuff, um, looked at since like uh, 2008 when they expanded to 10 nominees, there have only been, and, and actually before that, I think I went back 20, some 20 odd years there have been 22 films with all of those things I just listed to uh, all of those things that I listed. And every one of them ended up being a uh, Best Picture nominee except for wow. Knives Out. So just to say, I think it's extremely close. And uh, if it wasn't the additional nominee, I think uh, there was definitely some movies in the, the top nine that I would have kicked out. Um, 4V Ferrari was pretty... You know, it's pretty fun. I probably would have had Knives Out. I definitely would have had Knives Out over that. I would have had it over Jojo Rabbit and would have had it over over The Irishman and uh, maybe it's right there. Maybe probably over Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, too. So I probably would have had it in Best Picture. Yeah, I think it should have been nominated. I mean, for me, it's it's <laughs> I love your explanation and you're going to you're going to lo- love my <laughs> dumb explanation, which is yeah, it's one of the nine best movies of the year. <laughs> Of course, it should have been nominated for Best Picture. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. So that—that's. I think we both explained, you know, why it should have. And I, I was trying to say how it could have, and why it almost did. As far as so. the Best Picture uh, nominees, um, uh, I'm good with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I'm good with Parasite. I'm good with. I think The Irishman is a, a worthy nominee. Um, I'm good with Marriage Story. Mm-hmm. Uh, and oh yeah, I forgot Little Women was was nominated. Yeah, I'm, I'm good with that too. It's uh, yeah, I would throw in uh, Knives Out is probably my next movie that I would uh, I would cut 1917, Ford versus Ferrari, Jojo Rabbit, and Joker, um, in favor of of Knives Out if I could. Yeah, there's some personal picks I could put in there, but as a real having a realistic shot at Best Picture and deserving to be there and. You know, just thinking it should have been there. I think it's it's got a great case that uh, I would have loved to have seen it in Best Picture. As it just be it also be like a different kind of entry in there of not all of it's it's the one in there that's not as self serious and self important. As much as I love a lot of the movies that are in there, especially Parasite, Little Women, Little Women, and and Parasite are nearly perfect. So I think so is Marriage Story. Um, I think it definitely deserves to be in that top yeah. ten. Uh, yeah, it's, it's weird. Ford versus Ferrari. I think I thought it was a good movie, but, but just an odd Best Picture nominee, an odd kind of movie to to be in that mix. Um, I get why Joker and nineteen seventeen were nominated. They were big deals that resonated with a lot of people. Um, not so much with me. And then uh, Jojo Rabbit was um, one of my least favorite Taika Waititi movies, but it's, uh, mm-hmm. you know, 
we talked about that that one's it either works for you or it doesn't you were in the doesn't camp and i think myself and tj we we really like it i still stand by liking that movie i i uh, for me it's more of a mixed bag there were aspects of the movie that really did work for me and then there were aspects where <laughs> i was reaching for my phone bored but uh um mm-hmm. but yeah it's um either way i think i think to an extent jojo rabbit may have been more of a um this director has made a lot of uh, really good really good stuff and this is his sort of most oscar-y movie yet um so let's mm-hmm. uh I-, I can understand why jojo rabbit got some attention ford versus ferrari even though i liked it better than three of those movies it still seems like the weird the weirdest choice here um but so uh any uh any any other nominees that you would have uh nominations at least that you would have vouched for um i think it it has a case at uh production design if you look at it from a subtle perspective um a lot of production design is building elaborate worlds um the the one i think that we loved at the time was parasite how they use the architecture just to to help tell that story in stages is just like one of the most brilliant examples of production design i can remember yeah Uh, i think i'm not gonna say similarly on a on a level playing field but in a um well, I'm just going to say similarly because <laughs> the source.com is not working for me. In a similar case, uh, the house, the mansion in in this, I don't want to say it's almost like its own character, <laughs> but it it's it helps the who done it and the it kind of ties that together with the mystery mystery writer's house and the plausibility for how you could get away with it of the little tricks that are in the house the you know it's a it's an older house so there it's not an open concept there are there are a lot of closed off areas and rooms that are closed with doors rather than like a modern architecture like a parasite house that make the make the movie possible and make it interesting and i think with the uh lieutenant played by lakeith stanfield says you know this guy basically lives in a clue board (laughs) (laughs) it it definitely seems um definitely influenced by like that aesthetic of classic whodunit and maybe classic milton bradley games of (laughs) of whodunit i thought it was a, a great location they scouted or great location they built However, they did it. It really worked for me. Yeah, uh, I agree. I, I think it. I think the house is basically its own character in this movie. Um, <laughs> <laughs> there you go. <laughs> no, uh, but no, speaking of the house, you do get a gen- and and it's not perfect because uh, it, because it's so big and they they couldn't possibly do this uh, to perfection. But um, you do get a pretty good sense of the geography of the house uh, throughout the movie. Um, mm-hmm. You can kind of place where the stairs go up to uh, Harlan's office or his uh, whatever, his study. Um, mm-hmm. You can, uh, you can, you know, the stairs come down and then they, if you turn to the right, that heads out to the, uh, the patio where um, Walt is, you know, having a cigarette uh, in the, in the flashback. And, uh, mm-hmm. and yeah, you, you kind of get a sense of, um, 
the layout a little to an extent not not perfectly you don't know where the 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 knife room is in relation to everything else necessarily but it's uh i don't know i like that about this movie and then that's a i think it speaks to the the production design the the rooms are memorable yeah and i think you touched on something that's underrated and think about underrated and thinking about production design is does does it look does it feel cohesive like um the 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 movie needing a room does it just feel like a room that exists because it was needed or because it's part of the you know part of a whole and i think it does a good job at that uh yeah but that's probably it for me there are some there are some good performances in this but i don't know that they're necessary there let's put it this way there are performances in this movie that i like better than some nominees but i don't necessarily think Mm -hmm. that the performances here should necessarily have been nominated. Yeah. And, and I know we don't really, this isn't the, uh, here are the nominees of SAG, but it, it had a pretty good case to be in like the best oh, ensemble, absolutely. which is probably it's, that's probably why I haven't, you know, when we're talking about potential nominees, I didn't talk about on a or, um, Chris Evans or anyone just because, the whole ensemble itself is just so uh, in in uh, in step with each other, and they work so well off of each other that it's hard to pick one out in particular. Um, when some of the characters are acting big, their foils are someone who is small, especially Benoit Blanc acting with uh, Ana de Armas, who is you know small in stature and light in impact in terms of like you know her loudness or bombosity or you know just throwing around big character and the the true even the like the the investigators work well off each other no nonsense elliot and uh trooper wagner who's you know talking about hamilton in the middle of an investigation the the family works great with each other they feel like a real ish a little cartoonish but a real ish messed up family you know with all kinds of tropes being filled and people playing against or you know in against type or in type to uh to pretty fun effects so speaking of the pairing of uh of benoit and uh, marta so when no time to die comes out uh anadarmus is in that movie and <laughs> yeah. if James Bond hooks up with her character, it's going to be weird. <laughs> it will be a little weird, yeah. I don't know if... I try not to bring too much baggage from other movies, but having seen it three times, you've seen it four times, seven times between us, it'll be like, you know, you're compromising your investigation, <laughs> Benoit. <laughs> it seems like uh, a little unprofessional. <clears throat> well, you know, you were talking about the cast, and that perfectly brings us to the the cast section of the podcast so uh uh so let's let's run through this this incredible cast um and uh you know if there's any thoughts um that you have in in particular you know stop me but let's start with uh daniel craig as benoit blanc he is uh so much fun uh because of his ridiculousness including his ridiculous accent um (laughs) And <laughs> yeah. so Ryan Johnson has mentioned that he has kicked around the idea of uh, a Benoit Blanc expanded universe. <laughs> more more Knobs <laughs> Out movies uh, all centered around uh, Benoit. And I am here for it. Me too. 
I want to see him go to uh, any kind of an investigation, a new murder, a new whodunit. I'm on board. Yes. Yeah. Um, I, we've talked about him a lot. Um, uh, mm-hmm. Lakeith Stanfield is in this movie, and you know, I do, I do wonder, kind of like, I mean, Lakeith Stanfield's a really talented actor, and there's not a lot for him to do here. But do you think this is just sort of Lakeith Stanfield thinking? This movie sounds like a lot of fun. I would love to, I'd love to work with Ryan Johnson and work with his cast. Oh yeah, he's 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 insanely overqualified for what he needs to do here. I think that's a pretty good uh, statement for a lot of the cast is being overqualified for the amount of screen time. I think, uh, yeah, this kind of movie doesn't come around very often, so I think it was probably a fun opportunity for a lot of these actors. Um, you do see uh, Lakeith having fun a little bit with it, especially with uh, <laughs> multiple times calling out Benoit Blanc's weak sauce. Like, that's weak sauce, and you're dumping weak sauce all over this. <laughs> Is And, like, uh, he just nails some lines, especially like, the, this. that was the dumbest police chase <laughs> I've ever seen. Uh, he's, he's, uh, he's, he's an insanely talented actor. He definitely... The movie didn't need a super talented actor, but it's just one of those touches that makes the movie even just a little bit better for me. Yeah. Um, How about Trooper Wagner? It's played by Noah Segan. Yeah, he's he's fun. It's kind of like the uh, dim-witted foil to Lakeith Stanfield's Lieutenant Elliot. And he's he's Ryan Johnson's, like, best friend. He was... uh, I don't know if you've seen Brick... But he's the the boyfriend of the the girl who is at the center of the movie. Uh, he's a lot thinner then, but that was like his first movie, and he's I think he's been in every movie that Ryan's done huh. since then, if just like a extra or a cameo or a voice or something. That's kind of just like insider um, buddy in there. I didn't realize it was the guy from Brick until afterwards, and I was like, oh yeah. So uh, the the Thromby family, which is the the real meat of the uh, the casting here, um, start at the top. Harlan Thromby, the the late great Christopher Plummer. Um, you... Yeah, what what do you think about uh, Christopher Plummer here? In uh, not not one of his final film roles, but now he's he's passed away. Yeah, so I mean he's he's very good. Um, this is also kind of the mode he he had been in for a few years. Like I, I've also recently watched um, uh, Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, and he plays a very similar character, who also uh, winds up involved in a Daniel Craig investigation. <laughs> um, but uh, but yeah, he um, yeah I don't know. He kind of he kind of comes off as Christopher Plummer here, but Christopher Plummer is probably who they were thinking about when they wrote Harlan Thrombey. Yeah. That's why you get Christopher Plummer. Like he does sell the believability of you need someone who's, who's smart enough to make it plausible to not like cover up a crime, but to help someone else cover up a crime, like in an instant, like he's got, I forget the actual time that it takes a, to uh, pass away from the uh, morphine overdose, but he has, like, let's say, a couple minutes to come up with an airtight thing that works, you know, for the most part to get. He, he also uh, 
at first jots down in his journal. He's like, oh, this is a fascinating way to kill someone. So tell me, how long do I have? Mm-hmm. I've, I've got ten minutes? Oh, excellent. Um, just making notes for his next novel while he, uh, while Marta believes he's dying. Yeah, he's great. Yeah. The, the realization from having fun, you know, after the party, he's he's like up, up, up the stairs and like having a goof and doing an earthquake with the go board. And you, like you're saying, writing a note to it to realizing that his his life is ending. I think he plays very, very well. He also, um, uh, you know, if you're going to have a portrait of Harlan hanging in the, uh, you know, down in the house where these characters have to walk by after he's dead then you want someone with some just an you know a good iconic face to to put into that painting and i think christopher Plummer is, is that he also has just uh you know he's got a great he had a great voice of when the coins flipping and marta's going through all the things she's supposed to do the the she she kind of interacts with harlan how how the the narrative jujitsu works it's like she's trying to figure out, like, one of his instructions is, like, you know, I can't remember. The, there's the carved elephant outside. Like, do I turn off before or after? And, you know, like, he, he chimes in, like, uh, you know, before, and she yeah. goes after, you know. It's kind of a conversation with his memory there and just getting his, uh, his voice there as, uh, you know, believably pulling one over on a future investigator. I think it just works really well. Yeah, I do too. Um, we have uh, we have Walt Thromby, which is Michael Shannon, and uh, you know I, I've already kind of said what I enjoy about this performance. Um, any, anything more on him? Yeah, I love unhinged, funny Michael Shannon. Uh, anytime I can get it, I just love any kind of Michael Shannon. But when he gets to be funny, or when he gets to play um, low status, at least low intellectual status. Yeah. He, he's really yeah. fun. Uh, we have Tony Collette as Joni. And, uh, again, I think she's, you know, she delivers some good comedy early on and then the plot kind of leaves her in the dust, which is, which is fine. But, uh, uh it's, it's, it's a, a fun time for her. Yep. Again, overqualified and almost like yep. red herring, having some of the quality caliber of these actors kind of just be, but that's, that's important in a movie like this because the the worst mm-hmm. thing the worst thing in like a uh, um a movie or uh, even more so like a Law and Order episode is when you you really recognize one of the people that the investigators are talking to, like that actor, mm-hmm. and it's like, well, that's that guy's probably the one who did it because they're gonna they're gonna come back to him. <laughs> That guy did a murder because that guy is right, Bradley like Cooper. The, <laughs> and he's next to two guys. Why did I they don't hire know. him to just answer these three questions in the in the bar? So yeah, um, mm-hmm. so to have all these great actors on hand is uh, it, it's really helpful. Um, uh, we have Meg Thromby, who's a, a character that that she just kind of um, doesn't get quite as much juice to to, to juicy meat to chew on, uh, and that's Catherine Langford. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we have the uh, we have Jacob Thromby, who is a who is a single joke throughout the movie, but it's a pretty fun one. Uh, Jaden Martell as the uh, alt right grandson of Harlan, <laughs> the masturbating Nazi. Yeah, to, to uh, <laughs> pictures of dead deer, <laughs> as, uh, mm-hmm. as his uncle accuses. 
Uh, and then there's Donna Thrombey, which this may be the most, like, like, uh, I don't know, maybe the best example of the, hey, I know you, and then that's it. And it's uh, Ricky Lindholm. <laughs> mm-hmm. She doesn't do too much. I think she sets up the uh, the uh, Mexicans in cages thing for the uh, the the immigrant um, stance. But besides that, she's kind of not all that. Yeah, the, the Drysdales are uh, you know more central to the plot. We have Ransom, which is Chris Evans, of course. Uh, Linda, who's played by Jamie Lee Curtis, and Richard Don Johnson. Um, love the, you know they don't get a ton of screen time, but I love. Don Johnson and Jamie Lee Curtis in this movie. Yeah, they're they're phenomenal. Don Johnson is amazing in this, his later part of his career at playing a scumbag <laughs> and just being having a lot of fun, just being real sleazy. Is he always now? I mean, I kind of feel bad for him. Does he have to play kind of a racist person in literally everything now? Is it Django and Chained? Is that what started it? Uh, because he's a plantation so. owner in Django and Chained. And he's, you know, he's, he's, you know, he has some racial ickiness here. And then, uh, of course, there's Watchmen, um, which I don't want to spoil too much of. But, uh, yeah, mm-hmm. he had some uh, skeletons in his closet there. So it's, uh, yeah, I don't know. But it suits him. I mean, I'm sorry, Don, to say it, but the uh, <laughs> the role suits you well. Yeah, he does it well. And I, I love uh, Jamie Lee Curtis in this. It's just, uh, it reminds me of Jamie Lee Curtis in like the 80s and 90s. Um, and she's she's a great, she, like through her character, seems like the heir apparent of uh, Harlan Thrombey's yeah. personality. And uh, I think the movie pays that off really well with her figuring out the the games that they played with each other is how they would tell each other that they love each other and her figuring out the, the note that Don Johnson can't figure out and just the, the withering sarcasm that, that she does is, you know, she's just so good yeah. in the movie. Finally, we have the, the help. We have the nurse Marta played by Anna de Armas. Um, the help. Well, these are the, the help, the, the people outside the family. <laughs> um, I'm just pulling a Meg Thrombey. Um, uh, Fran, who's played by Edie Patterson, who uh, she gets a few decent scenes. She's pretty good. Um, I think she's someone that you don't pay a lot of attention to because Edie Patterson maybe isn't the the recognizable face that Tony Collette is uh, or Jamie Lee Curtis, but um, Fran winds up factoring into the plot in a pretty significant way. Um, and yeah. she's she's really funny. I, I'm, I keep thinking of. Her from the Righteous Gemstones. I don't know if you've ever no. seen that, but she's she's really fun being unhinged or in Vice Principals. She's she's she runs a lot with the Danny McBride vehicles, and seeing her in here is is pretty fun. And she gets a lot of uh she gets a lot of fun lines too. Talking about the Danica McKellar oh Lifetime movie. Yes, that's so <laughs> funny. Uh, I I forgot about that, but that I I love it. She mentions it twice, right? <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. The Deadly by Surprise <laughs> Lifetime movie. Um, uh, yeah, that. I think that's what I also really love about the screenplay in this movie is that the movie doesn't belabor itself trying to get across these like little character um, characterizations of, of each player, if you will, but uh, it, it drops mm-hmm. in little things that lets you know, kind of. And, 
And I think sure. that's a great example of that. Uh, Frank Oz appears in this movie as uh, the lawyer, Alan Stevens. Um, and it's great to see Frank Oz on screen. Um, and then uh, in yet another, like, wow, uh, kind of like, where'd you come from moment? Uh, Emmett Walsh, M. Emmett Walsh as uh, the groundskeeper. Um, just to show up and talk about how all, he's got this fancy modern technology, which is just VHS tapes. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, pretty great. But uh, yeah, great cast. So uh, finally, the Ryan Johnson, uh, our director. Um, you're a Ryan Johnson fan, David? I am. I've uh, I've seen all but one of his movies. I remember watching Brick as like a blockbuster rental back in the day, and like I probably saw it like a year after it came out or something. And my brother and I watched it with some friends, and it's the kind of movie when you watch because it's super stylized, like uh, it's like a uh, Dashiell Hammett dialogue in a high school that it's like really clever. That it's one of those movies where where it's like a uh it's like a it's like what i consider like a college movie poster movie like a fight club or something like that is just really cool (laughs) (laughs) and since then i think he's uh he's he's done some some movies that i i've tried to keep up with as as they're going on and and see him taking on bigger bigger scope bigger budgets and i always kind of cheered Mm -hmm. for him since i I was i'm not going to say i was there for his first movie but i rented it and and thought like where did this guy come from like this is such a cool voice he has do you have a favorite ryan johnson movie oh that's tough so for the, for the chronology here we have brick in 2005 the brothers bloom uh three years later looper in 2012 um he he did a star war star wars the last jedi in 2017 and the knives out 2019 oof that's it's tough um, I do love Brick. It's my uh, it's my first entry to what he did. I love Knives Out. I've seen it so many times. I also I'm such a huge fan of the Last Jedi. I think some of the reaction even makes me a, a bigger fan of it. Some of the people that have come out against it has just just makes me hunker down more. I don't I don't know what that says about me, but. Um, I think after I saw that, that might be my favorite Star War. It's either that or Empire. Um, enraging some people, I know, but um, I don't know. I'm gonna I'm gonna punt while I think about it. Do you have a favorite? Have you seen I've all seen of these? I've not seen Brothers Bloom. I've seen the other four movies. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd like to see Looper again, and I'd like to see Brick again. Um, I remember enjoying them, but I don't think they had a, a lasting big effect on me. So I think right now it comes down to two uh, movies that I, I really adore, and those are the, the Last Jedi and Knives Out. But I think my favorite would be mm-hmm. Knives Out of, of his of his work mm-hmm. so far. That's probably where I'm landing to. The one I actually haven't seen is Looper. Um, I've seen all of them but Looper. Um, I probably put Brothers Bloom near the bottom. Um, it's either Brick or Knives Out for me, and, and I'd probably go Knives Out too. It's, it's great when you can find just, an, like I said earlier, a comfort food movie. Just something that's easy and always entertaining and just and, and, and maintains that level of fun every, every time you watch. Um, hard to, mm-hmm. Really hard to beat that. Um, so, uh, as is our custom, 
Any guesses as to where Ryan Johnson falls in the top thousand directors of all time? <laughs> all right, so I think I'm learning. I'm, I'm trying to learn. Um, low output in terms of a director we're looking at here. We got only five movies to talk about. Um, his letterbox scores for these are uh, Knives Out is the highest at 4.0. The rest of them, the next highest is 3.7, and then we got mid to low threes there. Um, I'm, I think I'm gonna put him like, let's go like. I'm thinking 190 in my mind. That may be too uh, high. Yeah, it's it's too high. He, um, yeah, it's unfortunate that uh, even Letterboxd is is even, which I consider a very superior website to to most. It still falls a little bit prey to the uh, Last Jedi backlash, um, which mm-hmm. hurts him in this regard. I think I would probably, I mean, if you if you move that to like a even just like a 3.7 or a 3.8, he probably jumps a good. 50 spots but uh he is ranked 359th well that was way off that um time. he is uh this is fun he's five spots behind uh florian hinkle von donnerschmark <laughs> yeah <laughs> Who made... whose lives of others beat pan's labyrinth there's a connection uh, for you uh uh hinkle von donnerschmark is tied with jordan peele at 354th on the list. Wow. And Peel only has two, two movies, movies. But they are both, you know, wildly acclaimed. Um, yeah. Also in the 350s, though, you do have uh, some directors who uh, who have prolific outputs. You have Ron Howard in the 350s, who's another director who mm-hmm. turns out a lot of, uh, you know, f- movies that people like, but they're not particularly acc- acclaimed. It's hard to think of a, a truly great Ron Howard movie. Yeah. Besides... Apollo thir- Apollo uh, thirteen. I almost said Apollo oh, yeah. eleven. Apollo thirteen is, is pretty is high. Great. Yeah, for me. Um, John Hughes is also in the three fifties. Ah, he's an average score of three point three. Um, but uh, also uh, let's see, anybody else in this um In this range here, eh, I don't know. I think those are oh uh, the uh, the the Wachowskis are also in this mm. range. So he's in good company, but not yeah. And he's 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 by no means done his career right. either. He's he's fourteen years in, and as as we can see from Clint Eastwood, directors can go well into their. I think Clint Eastwood is one hundred and twenty five <laughs> right. now. <laughs> um, okay, well. Enough with that silliness. So let's. Um, any any final thoughts on Knives Out? I think uh, we turn, we talk about the legacy sometimes, and it's hard for a movie that came out like yeah. last year to talk about. I will say that it being a box office success is very heartening. In a, I'm not gonna go full Marty and say that that movies are roller coasters nowadays or amusement <laughs> park rides. But to have an original property that had no pre-existing mm-hmm. IP make um, over $160 million on like a $40 million budget, that's it makes me feel great for Ryan Johnson. You know, I know, I think he's probably doing okay, but it just uh, helps me cheer him on. And it's, it's, you know, in my mind, it's justice for the reaction to Episode Eight, the Star Wars, that... Um, I think I think is unfairly maligned, and his his uh, 
I think he was going to make, or maybe he still is, some more stuff in the Star Wars universe. He kind of exited that, or was was asked to be exited. I think this is some justice for how his movie and how he was treated from that, how successful he was with his own idea. Yeah, I'm I'm on board with that. It, I, uh, I I completely agree. the The Star Wars stuff rubbed me the wrong way, and uh, um, so yeah, it was it was fun to have. To, to see him have a, a major hit, a uh, big success. Um, yeah. Plus, I mean, we're going to, we're going to see Benoit Blanc again, probably. They, they announced a sequel. Uh, who knows what's going to happen at this point. But uh, I put this question in, in here. Is there anything you would like to see, I guess, situation, environment, or type of crime you'd want to see Benoit Blanc take on? I don't know, next? but I, I just, I kind of want the, I just want a different weapon in the title to be out uh, in each. Uh, you know, I want it to be, I don't, I don't know, uh, maybe not guns out. I think that's a, uh, it's a little, little simple, but I want, I want more um, hammers out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Or, or you could do a different Radiohead song. I mean, Paranoid Android yeah. is waiting for you there. Although that's kind of Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy there. So I know, Ryan, I know what, you're what a listener. What about so a, a, if... like a deep sea diving mystery uh, called The Bins? <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. We, we could, uh, I, I'd, I'd watch that. Um, and f- finally, uh, continuing with our other stupid podcast theme, um, how is this connected to our last movie, The Thief of Baghdad? <laughs> <laughs> well, the thing I have here is flipping status. Uh, Marta, like Abu, uh, started from now the bottom, here. now is at the top. Yeah, Drake style. Uh, was a hired nurse and is now the head of his estate worth presumably millions. I take it he's like a Stephen King or like a, I don't know, thriller writer magnate. Like a... I don't know, someone in of that ilk. So started taking orders from everybody and being in a servile kind of position transactionally to now being the boss, similar to Abu, who was a uh, thief in the in the city and then becomes he was gonna be the grand vizier and and his his buddy's the the king and he goes to do his own adventure. It's nice to see uh <laughs> I mean, it is satisfying for that status to get flipped, going from low status to high status for characters that we identify with and like. Um, that that was the connection that I made, more thematic than something like a Blue Rose and back-to-back movies. Pretty good. I'm impressed. Literally any connection here would have impressed me. <laughs> it's pretty difficult to do. <laughs> and I really like the flying carpet that Harlan Thrombey was on. <laughs> I was just about to say... Yeah, I love when they uncover the uh, the stabbing machine, the uh, the elaborate <laughs> stabbing machine, uh, the flying mechanical horse. <laughs> um, well, a car is a type of mechanical horse, and they have a car oh, chase. It is. <laughs> uh, there is a, there is an ominous spider in both movies. Hmm. There you go. It yeah. Keeps coming. Okay, so uh, last order of business is. Uh, Selecting the next movie for us to watch in our uh, in our um, 
endeavor here, which uh, at the pace of one movie a month is uh, means we will have watched all the Oscar-nominated films uh, by the year 3,374. <laughs> um, but, uh, <laughs> so, you know, just uh, got to work on that immortality serum and... Uh, and then we'll 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 get there. Um, Either immortality or our both of our kids have more stable sleeping patterns. Whichever comes right. first. <laughs> okay, so we're, we're dipping into a decade we have not hit before. We're going to the 1950s uh, for um, mm. uh, I believe this movie won for best director, and we are going to uh, one of the all-time great directors uh, for this for this movie. Um, let me let me give you the uh, the letterboxed uh, teaser here. Action, excitement, romance, fill the screen. An American man returns to the village of his birth in Ireland, where he finds love and conflict. Mm, mm, mm. Oh, dang. Makes me think of like a, a, a Brigadoon or a How Green Was My Valley kind of thing. I know. I think both. I think How Green Was My Valley was the '40s. I don't know much about Brigadoon other than I think it's an Irish village that appears every hundred years or something. Um, so it's probably not that. Um, '50s. It's not Marty. I don't see Ernest Borgnine being an Irish person going back. Um, I don't know. Once again, I'm 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 stumped. It's not Treasure of the Sea. So the star of this film is <laughs> arguably America's most iconic male movie star. Okay, so it's Justin Jeffers from Thief of Baghdad. <laughs> it's Justin Long in his screen debut. <laughs> um, is it? Uh, oh, is it? Uh, um, it's John Wayne. John Wayne. And it's John Ford. John Ford. And is it the quiet American or the, the what is it? The, the quiet man. The quiet man. That's right. Yes. The quiet American is a Michael Caine movie. The, <laughs> the quiet man. The quiet man. 1952. Uh, it's nominated for, I, I'm sure, other things. Uh, John Ford won for this movie. Um, his fourth best director. Hmm. Statuette. And it's uh, streaming on Amazon Prime. Okay, I, I have never seen it. I've never seen it either. Uh, I think my mom always really liked this movie. But uh, um, but yeah, I'm looking forward to it. So that Yeah, we'll, we'll have a John Wayne discussion for sure. <laughs> yeah, we'll see if he plays John Wayne in this movie because that's what I feel like he does in most movies. <laughs> um, From the title, I'm guessing he punches a lot less people and shoots a lot less guns, but we'll see. We'll see. We will see. All right. So, uh, um, thanks for thanks for listening to us uh, talk for two hours nearly about uh, Knives Out. Um, my goal is always just for the podcast to be slightly less long than the movie itself. <laughs> In a way, you could maybe put this on as a commentary track, which doesn't sync up at all with the movie. But yeah, uh, or at at one point two five speed, you're you got plenty of time left. <laughs> oh yeah. So, uh, anyway, thanks for listening, and uh, um, thank you, David. Thank you, Brent. And thank you, David, for doing the rest of the spiel starting (laughs) now. 
yeah thanks for listening things you can do to help us are to uh review the podcast uh, give us the star rating of your choice um also tell your friends about us um so we're we are uh we are the nominees, a podcast from the Media by Us. You could still go to the Media by Us website. Um, there's uh, the Media by Us Facebook page. We have a Twitter at the Media by Us. Um, we have some Facebook groups, Games by Us, Movies by Us, TV by Us, that have things at points in time. Um, and uh, let's see, what else do we usually say? It's been a month since we've done this. Um, yeah, those are basically the ways you can help us out. Uh, the biggest thing is tell your friends if you enjoy us, and if you don't enjoy us, don't tell anybody. <laughs> right, and thanks write, for <laughs> write down your angry thoughts about the podcast and just put it in a box and bury it in your backyard. <laughs> don't tell anyone. <laughs> yeah. about it. We also don't like hurtful emails. So <laughs> we're sensitive. We're very fragile. <laughs> yeah, but thanks, thanks for listening. If you made it to this point, Th- thank you to the tens of people who are listening. Yes, thank you very much, and until next time. Bye. Bye.